Amen. Thanks, Austin. Uh, so good morning again. <clears throat> Our scripture passage this morning is from Mark chapter 10. And so we are finishing this last little bit here, Mark, before we start our Advent series next week. Mark 10, beginning in verse 13, we're going to read <clears throat> all the way, excuse me, to verse 31. Uh, it is the story of the rich young ruler, which, which might be familiar to some. So if you would follow along with me, you can find a Bible and do that, or it's printed for you in your worship folder. It's also on the screen uh, behind me. If you're at home, uh, welcome to you as well. It should be on your screen too. And so uh, let's read together. They were bringing children to him, that is to Jesus, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He said to him, Teacher, all of these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. And then I want you to pay attention to this last verse. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. You say, sorry, I didn't prompt you. You were waiting for me to prompt you. There you go. The flowers fade, but the, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks. It should, it'll become automatic eventually for us, but we're still working our way to that. What I was thinking, I'll be honest, I, I got lost in my own kind of thought process in reading, reading that text just now this morning. Jesus is a bit spicy here. He, he has a little edge to him. Do you notice it? I mean, there's a little bit of an edge to his interactions with both. He's very curt. He's very... Kind of like, you know, I imagine him kind of gnarling as he's talking here a bit, at least as I was reading it just then. And I think that it's because there's a lot at stake here. This is a really important part of Mark's gospel. And what's happening in this particular section where all of this material is, is it feels, as you read it, very much like a wrestling match between Jesus' vision of the kingdom come through his own death and resurrection, 
which that's where they're going to Jerusalem to see that, but contrasted with the disciples' dreams of power and prestige for themselves. And it's back and forth throughout all of chapters 8, 9, and 10. The structural support for the narrative in Mark is provided by Jesus' three times foretelling of his suffering. So you see, if you have your Bible, you can see it's in eight, chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And then again in chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. And then again in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. So three times, he is, he is trying to explain to them what is going to happen to him as they're going to Jerusalem. Now, one of the things that Ashley and I have tried hard to do with our kids is to help narrate their experiences for them. Do you know what I mean by that? I, I, like, I think it is important an important part of parenting because kids need their parents' voice to help them understand the things going on in them and the things going on around them. They need someone to help them make sense of exactly what's happening in their world. They're not mature enough or wise enough to figure all that out all on their own. And if parents just leave them to come up to come to their own conclusions or, God forbid, to like narrate their lives from what they're watching on TikTok and Instagram and those kinds of things, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. And that's what Jesus is doing here by continuing to bring up the cross and the resurrection. He was teaching them, it says. He was narrating for them his particular, the true particular vision of the kingdom for them. The victory of God coming through suffering love. That the root of all the problems in the world was human pride. And that sin and death are the fruit of that human pride. And therefore salvation is God's victory over our pride through the humility of Jesus himself. The humility of Jesus is the root of the new creation, and that fruit of that new creation is the righteousness and joy and peace and eternal life he promises. But he's got to help them see that this is the case. So Andrew Murray, he wrote this in a great little book on humility. He says, Pride is the root of every sin and evil, the gate, the birth, and the curse of hell. Therefore, it is reasonable to say that nothing can be our redemption except the restoration of the lost humility, the original and only true relationship of the creature to its God. And so Jesus came to bring humility back to earth, to make us sharers in it, and by it to save us. Humility brought him, and he brought it. And then he goes on. He says, his humility is our salvation. His salvation is is our humility. That's a great little line. His humility is our salvation. His salvation is our humility. In other words, if the kingdom come was a cross and not a throne, not yet anyway, right? Not yet anyway, then belonging to the kingdom means a cross and not a throne for us too. For now, at least, until Jesus comes again. If his humility is our salvation, then his salvation means our humility. Now, Jesus illustrated this in the text by pointing to children as the model of faith. He said, verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter into it. Let me translate that for you. There are no grown-ups in heaven. There are no grown-ups in heaven. Humility is the doorway to the kingdom. Like the door of humility. Have you ever seen those pictures? If you've ever been to Israel, um, one of my one of my favorite parts of going to Israel a few years ago was going to was going to Bethlehem, and there at the Basilica of the, of the Nativity, which is built over the traditional site of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem today. There's this this huge church, and there's only one way into the church, and the, the it's this door, 
It's this door, and it's about uh, four feet high. So even somebody of my stature is forced to kind of bend down and almost, almost crawl through this door to enter into the Basilica of the Nativity, and that's, that's on purpose. It's called the Door of Humility. In order to get in, you have to bow. You have to bend your knee. You have to become a little one because that is the only way to enter the kingdom. Now, Mark couples this teaching on childlike faith in verses 13 through 16 with the story of the rich young ruler in verses 17 through 31. And they are a contrast because the young man was an example of the opposite of childlike dependence and faith. He was an example of the pride and self-reliance that often keep people out of the kingdom. He could not receive the kingdom with childlike faith. He would not enter through the door of humility. And his pride became his ruin. And it's a warning to you and I where Jesus says in verse 25 how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Was anybody else? I was struck by reading that even again. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. That is not the way the gospel is often preached in our society these days. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God because humility is the one necessity and humility is the absolute hardest thing for our sinful hearts. Now, typically, if you've noticed, I try to, I try to like come up with some kind of hook question to get you really thinking and, and then use the sermon time to try to answer that question. I don't have to do that this morning because there are really two questions that are posed in the text itself. And so we're just going to take those two questions and just talk about them together for a minute, thinking about this theme of humility. So the questions that I would have you consider as I've introed all of that stuff are the questions that are actually in the text. If you look there first, when the, the, the man comes to Jesus in verse 17, and he asks this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then once that interaction with him is over, the disciples come to Jesus with a second question, and they're astonished by the fact the man walked away and that Jesus let him walk away. And they say, well, if that guy isn't saved, then this is verse 26, who can be saved? And those are our two questions. What must I do, and who then can be saved? And the way you answer those questions is absolutely crucial in making you a person that your life is more and more on a trajectory towards humility or more and more on a trajectory like this rich young ruler. And so let's look at each as we walk through the text together first. Let's look at this first question posed to Jesus by the rich young ruler himself. Verse 17, he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? You see, the young man got it wrong before he even got started. He imagined that the solution to his problem, his unrest in his own soul, was his doing. And that was his fatal flaw. But we should not be surprised. By every indication, he was a person of tremendous rank and success. He was rich. We know that. Matthew describes him as extremely rich in his gospel. He was accomplished. He was used to throwing his weight around and getting things done. And so when it came to eternal life, when it came to his spiritual life, he assumed it worked the same way, that there was something that had to be done. And that way of living had led him to a very disciplined, moral life. It says, verse 20, he kept the commandments. There's no reason to doubt his sincerity in saying so. He addressed Jesus, notice there, it's interesting, verse 17, as good teacher, not Lord, not master. Jesus was, to him, a moral philosopher, a life coach, a yogi, someone who could show him the path to an even better self-improvement or state of mind. Because this guy, he was a doer. He wanted somebody to tell him what else 
other than what he'd already done, he needed to do. He was a doer. He was a hard worker. He was, he was an accomplished person, the kind of boy you parents would want your daughter to bring home. He was a good boy. And here's the problem, is it is extremely hard to be that good and not become proud of your goodness and begin to rely on it to make it, to make it through life. And if you do that, then you're also likely to think your goodness is what counts with God. And this was this young man's problem. He was self-confident. He was self-reliant. He had been successful in most things. And so, in all sincerity, what must I do? Because whatever Jesus told him to do, he was going to do it. He didn't need a savior, just a sage. His theology was, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And I'm one of the good people. So just tell me what else needs to be done. He, all he needed was help making sure he was good enough. And that's, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? And here's, here's the thing. Jesus took a su- issue with his assumption. This is where Jesus gets a little spicy. Look at how he responded to the question. He like goes right after this guy. He doesn't, he, you know, often Jesus will kind of compassionately reply. This is something different. Verse 18, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's a sharp response. Because again, there's a lot at stake here. Jesus' spiritual intuitions, of course, were, were, well, perfect. He perceived this man's spiritual condition and immediately challenged him. There's no, you know, he, he's going right after him. Um, he, he's saying, um, if I, you know, you call me a teacher. Well, if I'm just a teacher, he says, you know, why do you call me good? Like, I think, I think you got the wrong idea here. He says, you're looking for some teaching to, to, you know, to latch your life onto, but there is no teaching that lives up to God's standard for righteousness. If I'm just a teacher, and if, I, if that's all I am, and nothing else, then I, I'm not good. I can't lead you, you know, I have no moral philosophy to lead you to the goodness you're looking for. If I tell you what to do, and you do it, that doesn't make you good. Only God is good. I mean, he, he's trying to blow up his categories here. He's saying, don't try to come... See, he said, look, you're, you're getting off on the wrong foot here. Don't try to come to God on the basis of your goodness or the goodness of my teaching or the goodness of how well you do whatever I tell you to do. Your goodness can't save you. Only God's goodness can save you. You're asking, what must I do to, to have eternal life? Well, what if you can't achieve eternal life? What if you have to receive it like a little child instead? And see, there's the irony, of course. The irony was that Jesus was not just a good teacher. He was a savior. He wasn't a moral philosopher. He was God himself, the embodiment of the goodness of God. But that man, he, this man, he doesn't know that. Jesus was the grace of God appearing, Paul says in Titus chapter 2, bringing salvation for all people to show that salvation is by grace and not works. That is, that we are saved on the basis of Jesus's works and not our works. This is the way the gospel works in Christianity. His life of perfect obedience to God's law. I mean, the man claimed to have kept all the commandments. Do you notice that? But of course he had not. And I feel confident saying that because no one has except Jesus, who was born of a woman in the likeness of all humanity, born under the law that is obligated to God as we are. It says in Galatians 4, to redeem us by being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. But not only his life, not only are we saved by the work of his life, we are saved by by the death upon a cross too, because his death upon a cross was him paying the penalty for our sins. And the theologians call this his active and his passive obedience, or the active and passive righteousness of Christ. He 
actively obeyed God in all things, living a life that, he, that we should have lived. He passively submitted himself to the cross, dying the death that we deserve to die. And, and in both of those things, we are saved by his doing and not our own. That is, we are saved by grace, not works. We're saved by Jesus' works. Not your works, by the goodness of God in Christ to you, not your goodness. No one is good except God. That's the teaching. That's what he's trying to say here. You do not earn eternal life. You do not achieve it. You receive it. It is a gift. Christianity is gospel. It is grace. It's good news, not good advice. It's about God and not about you. And so we can finally answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the answer? Nothing. Nothing. In John 6, the crowds ask Jesus a similar question. They come to him and they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Do you see how ingrained in this flesh, in the flesh this idea is? We can't seem to get away from this way of thinking. What must I do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And this is Jesus' answer. His answer there was, this is the work of God that you believe in me. So what must I do? The answer is stop doing and believe. Because faith is receiving and resting in the work of Jesus for you. At the end of their conversation, Jesus said to this young man, verse 21, he said, here's the problem. I have every, I have every belief that whatever I tell you to do, you will go away and do it. But even in the doing of it, even at the end of all of your doing, you still lack one thing. Do you see that verse 21? You lack one thing. And what was that one thing? Was it some requirement that he had yet to keep? No, he lacked only one thing, the main thing. Faith. Looking to God for mercy and not to his own merit. He was all about how deserving he was, and that's all wrong. See, that's the problem. Tim Keller often says it like this. He says, if you want to become a Christian, all you need is nothing. Problem is, is most people don't have that. Instead, we come with our recommendation letters, our resume, our morality, our money, whatever it might be, without the one thing that opens the door to eternal life to us, our nothingness, our poverty of spirit, our humility. This man, it says, verse 22, went away disheartened and sorrowful because even though he had kept all of the commandments, he had too many personal, physical, and spiritual assets to be humble before God. So Tim Keller again, he says, the greatest deed, <laughs> this is so great, the greatest deed, you want to know what you got to do? The greatest deed is to receive salvation, uh, excuse me, the greatest deed to receive salvation is to admit that there isn't any deed to do. The hardest thing is to admit, admit that no matter how hard you try, you can't earn it. It is not too easy to accept the free grace of God. It is too hard. That's why people aren't doing it. It's the hardest thing in the world. It's too scary. It's too humbling. It's too wonderful for us to let ourselves believe in it. This is the great deed to admit there is no great deed you must do. Christianity is grace. And if you want grace, all you need is need. Secondly, there's a second question. What must I do? And then Jesus kind of deconstructs that for this man, but it shakes, it shakes the foundations of the disciples' lives because they come and pose a question to him as they see this interaction happen here all the way to verses, you know, verse 22. 
they come to him and say, okay, we're confused. Who then can be saved? If not the wealthy, if not the worthy, then who? And the answer, of course, to that question is, it's the weak, not the wealthy. It's those who are last, not those who are first. That's verse 31. So Jesus' answer to the question is, again, instructive. He, he, uh, he, again, he's a little spicy here. He says, who then can be saved? He says, well, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, this young man's error was thinking that it was in his power to do what was necessary to achieve eternal life. But Jesus says it's impossible without God. It can't happen without him. Your grit and goodness will not, never be enough. They will not save you. The Bible consistently preaches salvation belongs to God. It requires something that is beyond you, an act of God's supernatural power. In other words, every person who believes is a miracle. Man, I really, right? No one, not a single one of us in the room this morning, is beyond the need of God's grace. And no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. It makes sense then that those who know they are not enough, that they're the ones that find themselves in the kingdom. It takes humility to admit that you can't do it on your own, that you need grace. Andrew Murray describes humility as acknowledging that you're nothing and God is all. That's it. You just acknowledge that you're nothing and God is all. And that is saving faith too. There's a line from the hymn we sang earlier that gets me every time. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And so what, what the hymn writer means there is there is a spiritual fitness, but it is not what you see here in this young man. And that's the surprise. That's the turn in the text that becomes kind of the, oh, oh, wow moment, because it was a surprise to the disciples. It says they were astonished over these things. They were, they were perplexed. Like it, it just it blew all of their theological and mental categories. They never really thought this way. That spiritual strength is not what you see. They assumed, oh, look, this guy's got it all together. I mean, he's got, he's got the full resume. I mean, look, watch, what, watch how this happens, and then it doesn't go the way they think it is going to go, and they have to realize, no, spiritual strength is actually something different. It's recognizing your weakness. So the young man went to the law to find righteousness. He says, I've done all the commandments. The problem is, is the law was never meant to lead you to righteousness. The law since the time God gave it, is supposed to lead you to your need. The law says, as we read in those passages earlier, do this and you'll live. And this man thought, well, I've done it. I've kept the commandments. At least it appeared that way. But he's, he's, if he's so confident in his religious performance, here's my question. If he really thinks, you know what, I've done, I've done everything the law tells me to do. If that's the case, if that's really how he feels, then my question is this. Then why is he asking what else he has to do? He must have some sense that all of his commandment keeping was still not enough. If doing, and, that, and I think that's an issue. If, you're, if doing is the way to eternal life, how can you ever be sure you've done enough? The law was doing its work on him. But his fatal mistake was he doubled down on his doing instead of letting the law lead him to his need. And then through his need to faith. That's how Paul says it's supposed to happen. You go to the law, you go to the commandments looking for righteousness, and you find need instead. You, figure, you realize, oh gosh, I'm, I can never do this, and so if I have to do this to live, I'm sunk because I'm never going to do it. And then your need leads you to look beyond yourself to faith in Jesus. So a spiritually healthy person isn't strong. They're actually weak because they know that, that it's not about their strength. Now, this makes sense of a phenomenon that Andrew Walls 
has written about. He's a distinguished historian of Christianity. He wrote, he's been researching this, and he wrote about this fascinating uh, thing where uh, all the other great world religions, wherever the religion began, that place of its origins is still the center today. So in Islam, started in Mecca, the Middle East, and Mecca in particular, is still the center of Islam all of these thousands of years later. Hinduism started in India. It's still predominantly found in India, but, but it's different with Christianity. It's not the same with Christianity. In Christianity, the center, the center of Christianity is always moving. Think about that. So originally, it began in Jerusalem, and then the Greeks began to embrace Christianity, and the center moved from Jerusalem to, to the Mediterranean world, to Rome, and then the Franks and the Anglo-Saxons and the, and the Celts took hold of the faith, and the center migrated to northern Europe, and then, of course, from northern Europe, or from Europe to North America, and then it's been kind of located in, in North America for the last, you know, few hundred years, the, all, a lot of the energy and all that kind of stuff anyway. But now what's happening is now American Christianity is receding, and it's the southern hemisphere. It's Latin America and Africa and southern Asia. There are 2.5 million Episcopals in the U.S. and rapidly declining. There are 17 million Episcopals in the country of Nigeria alone in Africa. One hundred years ago, just a hundred years ago, Africa was one percent Christian. It's now over fifty percent Christian in a hundred years. But why, right? Why? Well, that—that's the question Andrew Walls was seeking an answer to, and here was the conclusion that he came to. Okay, he says there is obviously a certain vulnerability, a fragility at the heart of Christianity. You might say the vulnerability of the cross. And what he—the conclusion he came to—is that Christianity flourishes in weakness. When the church finds success, that success often leads to cultural position and power and influence. And ironically, when that starts to happen, the power of the gospel is lost and the spirit moves on to some other place to work through weakness. It's fascinating, isn't it? Well, then who can be saved? I mean, what's the answer? Who then can be saved? What must I do? What was the answer? Do you remember the answer to that question? What must I do? Nothing. Who then can be saved? No one. Isn't that what Jesus says? Not in their own strength. Not without, what does he say? It's impossible. Except with God. Who can be saved? Only those who know their need. Who know they can't do it all on their own. Who know that their strength and resources aren't enough. And that's, man, Here's what I hope happens to you when you hear that, is you kind of just like, okay, like, the pressure's off, right? Who can be saved? Those who know they don't, can't do it on their own, who know that their own strength and resources aren't enough, but here's the thing, that's the problem with riches. Now, I don't want this to become a sermon about money, because it's not. It might be success, it might be popularity, but there is a particular danger with wealth, this young man went away sad, it says, verse 22, for he had great possessions. What that means is he was not willing to do life without his money, presumably because his money had become his strength and security. And it's why Jesus said, in verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is extremely difficult to have wealth and feel your spiritual poverty. Let me say that again. It's extremely difficult to be safe and secure, and for everything to be going well, and to have wealth, and for you to feel your spiritual poverty. It's not impossible. 
All things are possible with God, but it's hard. It's hard. And that's why Jesus invites him to divest himself of his wealth for the sake of the greater treasure. I love it in the text. It says, verse 21, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He saw this young man all the way to the bottom and he knew that he was tied to his wealth with a psychological, emotional, umbilical cord. He was drawing all of his life and strength and comfort and security from his earthly treasure and out of compassion for his soul, he said, you have to let it go. You have to cut it off. And the lesson is this, sometimes you have to let go of the things in your life that make you feel safe and strong because if you don't, then you're in danger of turning them into an idol. Tim Keller said, the rich, I thought this was so good. Listen to this. He says, the rich young ruler's money had become for him what the father was for Jesus. And again, it can happen with almost anything. It can happen with money. It can happen with work success. It can happen with family. It can happen in a relationship. It can happen with kids, whatever. That you, we are always in danger of something something good, becoming for us what the Father should be and what the Father was for Jesus. And in order to be saved, you have to give up your righteousness for Jesus' righteousness, right? I mean, saving faith is, I, I know I will never be righteous on my own. I will never meet the standard that God has for me. Jesus, you're my only hope. You've done for me what I cannot do for myself. In order to be saved, you have to give up your righteousness for Jesus' righteousness but here's the thing, it's the same with everything else. If you're prone to trust in riches and not in God's love for you, then you have to give up your riches. And Jesus' advice is this, really, be, be proactive. Go ahead, decide now to give up your riches at the front. That way, it'll never be a problem. You won't ever have to worry about it. And the same goes for the rest. Or let me just say it this way, humble yourself. That's what he's calling this, this man to do, humble yourself. Because, remember what I said at the beginning, humility is the door to Christianity. But you can't, here's the, you can't do humility. As soon as you start trying to be humble, you're not humble. Because you're back to your effort, which is the opposite of humility. So you can't do humility. You can, however, humble yourself. You can stretch towards weakness by running away and not, running towards, excuse me, and not away from childlike dependence however the Lord will be leading you in your life and I promise you if you belong to him he is inviting you into weakness he's doing something in your life that is an invitation to you that that mirrors the invitation to this young man here to let go of something and come into a greater childlike dependence and trust in him and you can kick against it you can fight against him or you can surrender yourself to it humble yourself that's, that's his advice, and it's my advice. But let's be honest, that's scary, isn't it? It rattled, it rattled the disciples. Well, all of them except Peter. Peter makes some appearances, doesn't he, in the Gospel of Mark? He's the best. Look at Peter. Peter, said, <laughs> Peter comes at verse 28 and says, But Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. What about us? Now, and I, and I, I look at that, and I, th I think, okay, that's not, it's not a boast, not exactly. At least Jesus took it as a legitimate, I don't know, what is it? Is it a question? Is it a statement? What, what, what exactly is it? But I do know what Peter's intent is. Peter, Peter wants to know. Peter is asking Jesus, 
He wants to know, he says, look, we've left everything for you, and he wants to know if it's worth it. Is it going to be worth it? And Jesus' very clear answer is yes. Because look what he says. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. And let me just stop and say, if you're going to put your life to follow Jesus, you should expect that. If you follow Jesus, it will cost you some or all of those things. That is just the way it is. Now, it may not feel like it is the way it is, uh, and that is because we are now in this place where we're doing our Christianity in our own strength, which is not the real thing, which is why the Spirit's moved on to Africa. But if there would be a revival of true Christianity in North America and here among us, it would mean that we would, we would, we would face the reality of to follow Jesus means you should expect that it would cost you some, if not all, of those things. But here's the thing. It's worth it. Because he goes on, no one who, who has left those things. Not, it doesn't say no one who those things have been taken away from. What does it say? No one who has left those things. No one who made the decision proactively to move away from those things. There's no one who did that who will not receive a hundredfold in this time. And then he goes back, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, with persecutions. And so it's going to be good now. But it's even going to be better. And then he says, but in the age to come, eternal life. Now, that does not mean that if you give your money away, somehow you will end up with more of it. It is a promise that Jesus' love is better than life. It's a promise that you will always, listen, you will always find more in him than in whatever you're forced to leave behind along the way. You will always find more in him than whatever, in whatever you're forced to leave behind along the way. His love is better than the love of a mother or a father or siblings or even children. In his love, you can find a rest, a security, a sense of meaning and purpose that is a hundred times better than what you will find anywhere else. That's the promise he makes to us here. And now if you're like me and you say, I don't know if I believe it, it's because you've never tested the waters. And I know it's true. I know it's true, even though I have such little experience personally. I know it's true because Jesus, Jesus, too, was a rich young man, far richer than this man was. He lived in incomprehensible glory, wealth, beauty, and joy in the Trinity from all eternity. And he left all of that wealth behind. He plunged himself into a deeper poverty than anyone else has ever known, stripped of his glory, his blessedness, his friends, but most of all, losing the eternal communion he had with the Father, forsaken and condemned, hanging upon a cross, naked, shamed, outcast for our sins. Hell itself. He gave it all away. And to us this morning, he would say, I gave it all away for you. Will you not give everything for me in return for me? I'm the rich young ruler, he would say, who has given away the ultimate wealth to get you. Now, in light of that, you, you, you can give everything away to get me. That's the call of this text. And so we, 
say along with the hymn that we already sang, well then out of unrest and arrogant pride, Jesus I come, exclamation point, Jesus I come, exclamation point, into thy blessed will to abide, Jesus I come to thee, out of my, out of myself to dwell in thy love, out of despair into raptures above, upward forever on wings like a dove, Jesus I come to thee, amen, pray with me. So Father, yes, where our hearts are still hesitant and afraid and we can feel it and it feels overwhelming and we don't like this kind of stuff. We just want it, like it's, it's Christmas time. It's supposed to be cheery and easy and nice. Everything's just supposed to be nice and clean and safe and all of that and yet here we see that no, it's far more complicated than that because sin has a death, a death hold upon our hearts, and we are so often not even aware. And we are addicted, we are addicted to comfort and security and safety and affluence and all of these things, not realizing that they are the very things that are keeping us from the life that is truly life. And so we need you, Holy Spirit, to come and do a work of grace in our hearts. And I stand before these people and I stand uh, for these people and say, it feels like that is an impossible work. And yet we're reminded in this text that nothing is impossible with God. On our own, it is impossible. But you can come and you can change us. You can make us new. You can loosen our grasp on the things that we're clutching and holding on so tightly to. You can, in your goodness and kindness to us, lead us even into the scary places of humility and nothingness and need to teach us the truth about eternal life and to lead us to an even greater joy and hope and security and rest than we, than we quite honestly have ever found on our own. And so would you come and do that? If there are some in the room this morning that would say, these questions are just on my heart, what must I do? And how can I be saved? Then I pray that you would lead them to a knowledge of your great love for them, that they would lay their deadly doing down at Jesus' feet, knowing that it's that act in which we stand gloriously complete in front of you. So, Father, lead us in this moment to our own, our own nothingness, and may we rejoice in that. And may that rejoicing be evidenced by the song we now sing. And so form this song on our lips as a response, a response of faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. And so what this benediction means is not that because of what I'm about to speak over you, you should expect that you're going to go from this place and everything's just going to be great all the time. Because if you learn anything, Jesus is always inviting us into weakness and need to learn, to learn more of our, of our need ultimately for him. And so what this benediction means is, is that no matter what you face, even the hard things, that you might go and have to face this week, this benediction means that they are, that God will transform those hard things into an opportunity for you to have even greater joy and hope and peace because of what you experience of him in them. And so receive this benediction. Go into this week with courage and strength, uh, boasting in the Lord and not in yourself, uh, despite whatever might come. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You can go in his peace.